1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we pray now, Lord, that as we begin to walk through these verses and as we continue to walk through this book of 1 Corinthians, Lord, we do pray that you would be with us here in this place in a most powerful and palpable sense. We pray, Lord God, that you would use the words of the Apostle Paul to shape our church, to shape our individual character. Father, we pray that, that your Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher pray that you would direct our attention heavenward. And as always, Lord, we pray that all that we do here this morning would transform us just that much more into the character of Christ. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most interesting stories in the New Testament, or at least in the Gospels, um, particularly regarding the disciples, or at least I think, I mean, this is just my opinion, but one of the most interesting stories that I find in the Gospels is the story that we see in Matthew chapter 20 of uh, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, uh, coming to Jesus with their mother. And uh, she is the uh, spokesperson for the two of them. You probably remember the story. And she says, promise me that in your kingdom, you will set each of my sons, one on your right hand and one on your left. And so at that point, they are still expecting that Jesus is going to be a political and military leader. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, but in your kingdom, when you establish it, when you overthrow the Roman Empire, 
promised that one of my sons will be the vice regent and the other will be the secretary of state in this new political nation. And of course, you know, Jesus says, woman, you don't know what you're asking. Can they drink the cup that I am going to drink? And they say, oh, yeah, we can do that. He says, well, you will. At some point, they will be um, persecuted for their faith. But nonetheless, he tells them that it's not his to give, but rather it is his father's place to give. But the reason I find that story so fascinating is, is really for three reasons. One is that these are two grown men who bring their mother. I have always found that fascinating. Like, who does that? They are literally hiding behind her skirt. Go on, Mom, ask him, ask him. He's got a weakness for mothers, I know. We saw Mary make him turn water into wine. He can't turn down a mother's request. The second reason I always find that story fascinating is that these are two of Jesus' disciples. These are two of Jesus' disciples who have been with him for three years. We know that because if you go back and look at that chapter, the very next chapter, chapter 21, is the triumphal entry. It's the beginning of Jesus' last week in his, his, uh, during his, uh, his, his life of ministry, his time of ministry on earth. So they have been with him for three years. They have lived with Jesus. They have slept with Jesus. They have walked with Jesus. They have eaten with Jesus. They've been with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in the flesh. And yet, here they are jockeying for positions. It just makes me think that if, if the disciples who have been with Jesus, James and John, for three years are slow to learn, if they are slow to grow in their sanctification... Well, there's hope for us then, right? <laughs> I don't feel so bad. There's hope. The third reason I find that story so interesting is that not only are these two of the 12 disciples who have been with him for three years, but these two were a part of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John, who go on later to be described in the book of Acts and even by Paul and Galatians as leaders within the church, pillars of the church. It was these three individuals, for example, that Jesus allowed to come with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 and to, to see Jesus transformed into dazzling white appearance, to hear the very voice of God the Father, to be enshrouded in the cloud of glory. It was only these three, Peter, James, and John. It was Peter, James, and John only that Jesus allowed to go into the room in Mark chapter 5 when he raises a little girl back to life from the dead. 
It was Peter, James, and John in Mark chapter 14 on Jesus' night of his betrayal when he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells the disciples to wait here and pray. But then he takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he goes off a little further, and he prays with them. These are the leaders among the leaders, so to speak. Jesus' inner circle. John would go on to write a very weighty gospel account. Peter will go on to write some significant letters. James will give his life early on, standing for his belief in Christ, standing with Christ, unwilling to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, that God truly does use the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak in the world to shame the strong because God gets more glory when he does that. The point, however, that I am wanting to make in this introduction is that even among the apostles, even among the apostles themselves, pride can swell. Leadership can go to one's head. And we often forget, and even those who follow their leaders within the church often forget that we are simply called to be servants. Leaders are called to be servants. In fact, Jesus will use that event as an opportunity to teach them a very important lesson about leadership. Because then we're told in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 20 that when the other disciples heard what James and John had done, they became indignant. Where do they get off going to Jesus and asking for the number one and two spot within the kingdom? Who do they think they are? So Jesus called all of them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Keep in mind, he's talking to the disciples. Of course, this can apply to every Christian and should apply to every Christian. But he's talking to those who will be listed in Revelation as the foundation of the church, 12 pillars with 12 names of the apostles written upon them. These are the leaders of the universal church of God. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
It's interesting that the word Jesus uses for serve there in that text is the, the verbal form of the word for deacon. In the Greek, deacon is diakonos. The verb form is diakoneo, to serve. Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to function as a deacon, so to speak, the quintessential deacon within the church, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He offers himself as the example to follow. Christ was under no obligations to take on human form and to die on the cross for sinners. No one forced Adam and Eve to sin against God. They chose of their own free will to do that. And throughout our lives, no one forces us to sin. When we sin, we choose to sin, to rebel against God. Yet, although we brought this on ourselves, Christ chooses to become a servant to us and to meet our greatest and deepest need. This is what Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand. That yes, all Christians, but in particular, leaders within the church, apostles and certainly ministers within the church are simply servants. And thus, in our passage, Paul makes four points. One main point, which is in verse 1, and then from that first main point in verse 1, he will then articulate three sub-points that sort of roll off of verse 1 or that first major point. So his first point is simply this. Ministers are servants of God. Quite simple. He says in verse 1, this is how one should regard us. The us that he is referring to in context is himself, Peter, and Apollos. He just mentioned them in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. These are the three that the church has been dividing over, and Jesus. Of course, he's not going to bring Jesus into this, because those who are siding with Jesus, in Paul's mind, they're on the right track, right? They're the only ones that are getting this. It's the rest of you who are aligning yourself with Peter, who are aligning yourself with Paul, who are aligning yourself with Apollos. He says, this is how one should regard us. This is how you should think of us, the apostles as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants of Christ. Again, it's interesting that Paul, back in chapter 3, verse 5, uses the Greek word for deacon. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each of us. So he's already made that clear that we are simply servants. He uses the Greek word diakonos, which we translate as deacon when we're talking about the office. But the word itself really just means servant. And there are many places, as I've shown you in Matthew chapter 20 and also here, where that Greek word diakonos is translated simply as servant because that is the basic meaning of the word. 
Paul says, we're simply servants. That's all we are. But he uses a different word in verse 1 for servants. It's not the same word. He uses the Greek word huperites. Huperites. It's a word that is not found very often in the New Testament, though it is found in other places. But what's interesting about this word is that in classical Greek literature, that is in in Greek literature outside of the Bible, and also in New Testament Greek as well, the word huperites literally means under rower. Under rower. Because the word, it is a noun, and it is used to describe someone who is assigned to the lower deck of a ship to row. This is before the days they had really figured out the science of navigating and powering a ship with sails. And so they had all of these oarsmen that were in the belly of the ship. Oftentimes, these were slaves that were captured. But if you didn't have enough slaves, then you would have to use members of the crew. And of course, this was the most demeaning task for any member of the crew to do. Nobody wanted to be an under rower. Nobody wanted to be an oarsman. There were other jobs on a ship that needed to be done. There were people up on deck who had to manage the ropes and drop the anchor and hoist the anchor and, of course, steer the ship and whatever else they do. I don't know. I was in the Army, not the Navy. I don't know what they do on ships. But there are other things, I'm sure, that have to be done on a ship. And the most demeaning task, the most menial task, was that of under rower. It was hard. It was hot. It was damp. It was dark. It was musky. And your job was simply to row with a whole team of rowers. They would simply row and row and row and row. Paul says, that's how you should think of us, the apostles. We are simply the rowers in the underbelly of the ship. And if the ship is the church, and every Christian is a member of the crew, then Paul says, look, you all are doing other things within the church, which is great and important, but we, the apostles, are simply servants, slaves in the underbelly. He also says that they are Stewards of the mysteries of God. Another interesting word he uses there, oikonomos. It's a word that literally means chief servant, or you could say head butler. If you've ever watched some of those uh, shows that take place back in the 1800s, you know some of those. I think Downton Abbey was one that was quite popular. It's the idea that wealthy landowners would always have that one chief servant that they could trust. Sometimes a servant, oftentimes a slave who was treated very well, allowed to live in the home, was educated, and he was the master's most trusted servant. But he was a servant nonetheless. He recognized that none of this belongs to me. I don't own any of it. I didn't earn any of it. I was simply made a servant by my master, and I was given this task. And so when my master goes off on a long journey, when he's gone for 
six months during the winter time vacationing on the southern coast of France. My job is to maintain the home, to make sure that everything is kept in order, to make sure that all of the other servants are not taking advantage of the master, that they don't kick their feet up and begin to eat all the food out of the kitchen so that when the master returns, everything will be just as he left it or even better. So Paul says, this is how you should view the apostles. This is how we should view the apostles, and certainly this would apply to all Christians, but in particular it applies to ministers within the church. Those who would be viewed to have a leadership position, Paul says, we are simply under rowers. We are simply servants. We are ministers of the mystery, stewards of the mysteries of God. That is one of Paul's favorite phrases. It's his way of saying the things of God, the truths of God, theological truths, doctrinal propositions. We are stewards of the things of God. We have been entrusted with them to communicate them to you and to teach you about God and to point you in the right direction and to simply point you toward Christ. point that Paul is making to them is a point that applies to all the church today is that they need to stop placing the apostles on pedestals. As a church, we need to stop placing ministers on pedestals. Because, my friends, the higher up you place someone on a pedestal, the farther and the harder they will fall because they will fall. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when because apostles and human and ministers of the gospel are simply human. In light of this first point, Paul will make three additional subpoints. So he writes this first point and then he thinks to himself, you know what, there's a Three more things I need to say about this verse one and sort of flesh it out in a little more detail. And his first point is this, or his first sub-point, I should say. Ministers must be faithful in all God has entrusted to them. Since ministers, this is Paul's thinking, since ministers are servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, then they are required. They are required to be faithful in all that God has entrusted to them. Look at verse 2. Moreover, he says. So he gives that first point in verse 11. But then he adds, moreover, in light of verse 1, in light of this truth, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. I think the NASB, the New American Standard, has a really good translation from the Greek. They say, in this case, in this case, in light of the fact that ministers, apostles of the gospel are simply servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God, in this case, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. 
In other words, given the enormous responsibility of apostles and ministers of the gospel, that they are, with what they are entrusted with, it is critical that they be trustworthy in their words, by their actions, by their deeds, and by their decisions. That's why Paul lists, I believe, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and also Titus chapter 1, in both of those instances where he lists the qualifications of an elder, which we may be appointing here sometime soon, in both those lists, the very first thing he lists is above reproach. That anyone who holds a leadership position within the church must be above reproach because they must be someone that can be fully trusted. Doug Wilson, in his excellent book titled Mother Kirk, which uh, Kirk, by the way, is the Dutch word for church, his book Mother Kirk, Essays and Forays in Practical Ecclesiology says this regarding 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, that a major error many churches make in appointing elders, quote, is the sloppiness found in liberal and modern evangelical churches. This attitude begins by decrying legalism and perfectionism and then moves on to consider the biblical requirements as nothing more than mere suggestions. Then, as a noble ideal, but impossible to achieve in the real world, and then not surprisingly disregarded entirely, dismissed from consideration as unrealistic. No one can hold to these qualifications. He goes on to say, countless churches have fallen from faithfulness to Christ into fuzzy-minded liberalism because they were faithless first in how they selected their leaders. Second sub-point that Paul makes. Only God has the right to judge the motives and effectiveness of his servants. Notice verse 3. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. What is Paul talking about? In essence, what Paul is saying is that to him, it matters very little what the Corinthians think about him. That's a loose translation, but that is what he's saying. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I don't really care what you think. By you or by any human court, that is, in the court of public opinion. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself. You see, what Paul is talking about is, and we'll see this as we get toward the end more clearly, 
But up front, I'll tell you that what Paul is talking about is judging his motives, judging the effectiveness of his ministry. Paul says, I don't really care what you think about my motives. Because apparently they reply with some uh, very clear ideas of what they think. Because when you get to 2 Corinthians, Paul then has to defend his apostleship. Because there are some who are accusing Paul of having ulterior motives in what he does. But Paul makes clear that he does everything for the glory of Christ. So Paul says, look, I don't really care what you think about my motives because only God knows what my motives are. And I don't care what you think about the effectiveness of my ministry. In fact, Paul says, I don't even judge myself in that regard. Because the reality is, quite oftentimes, we don't even understand our own motives. Truly, only God knows the true intentions and motives of the human and only God knows how effective we are in ministry. Are we really making a difference or are we not? So, God, so Paul says, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says he's not judging himself. Why is he not? Because he's not aware of anything that he has done wrong. Paul says, I'm not aware of any pure motive within my heart. I am not aware of anything that I have done wrong. But then he quickly throws in, for the sake of honesty, not that that proves me innocent. That's what he means by that little phrase. But I am not thereby acquitted. In other words... That doesn't justify me. That doesn't mean that I'm innocent. It may be that I've done something wrong. I don't know. But Paul says, look, I don't spend my days trying to do self-evaluation. I spend my days and I spend my time trying to do everything I can for the glory of Christ, trying to reach people with the gospel, trying to teach people the mysteries of God, that's how I spend my days, not judging myself or comparing myself to other people. As Paul says, I don't really care what other people think. And at the end of it, he says, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, that's the person that I'm concerned about. The only one I care about is what God thinks. I read the Bible, and I live it out as best I can, and I strive for holiness and godliness as best I can, and if how I live that out, how I pursue holiness, how I engage in ministry upsets other people, Paul says, I care not. God will judge me. He's the only one I care about. He's the only opinion I am concerned about. It's an important lesson for any minister to learn. We ought not to stick our finger in the air to determine, well, what are people going to think? How are they going to respond? How will they react? 
It's one of the reasons so often churches don't engage in church discipline. Because if we exercise church discipline on that person, well, this is not going to go well in the church. They are so loved. They are so appreciated. We'll just sweep it under the rug. And we'll hope that nobody finds out. Because they're more concerned about what people think rather than doing what is right. But understand, Paul is not saying we ought not to judge each other or that we ought not to judge ministers. Don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. Don't misunderstand what I am saying. Paul has made and will make very clear that Christians are to judge each other, right? He's already done that with the church in Corinth. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he judges them quite severely. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready for it, for you are still in the flesh. Paul makes a judgment call on them. You all are infantile in your spiritual maturity. In chapter 5, Paul will level another judgment call against someone that was in the church that they were not wanting to exercise church discipline on. They were not wanting to remove, maybe for the reasons that I've just described. We don't really know. But they're letting it continue. Paul judges that individual from a distance and says, he ought to be removed from the church. And we read in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 14, that Paul was willing to even judge Peter. Remember that? He says, I confronted Peter face to face because of his hypocrisy. You say one thing, but you do something else. Paul confronted him. So Paul is not saying, as Christians, we are not to judge each other or hold one another accountable. Absolutely. But he is saying we need to limit that to actions, words, what people do. We can be fruit inspectors. That looks like good fruit. That looks like bad fruit. That's a good thing to do. That's not a good thing to do. But we ought not to judge the motives of someone's heart because we can't see into someone's heart. And we ought not to judge the effectiveness of their ministry because only God knows how effective that person's ministry is. Paul's third subpoint from verse 5. Therefore, he says, notice verse 5. Therefore, that is in light of all of these truths that I've just outlined in verses 1 to 4, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time. So now you know what he means by that, right? He's not saying we shouldn't judge each other, but don't pronounce judgment in terms of the motives of someone's heart or the effectiveness of their ministry before the time, before the day of judgment, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the 
So there it is. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul here is not making a pronouncement of whether certain individuals are saved or not saved. And he is saying that the church in Corinth should not do that as well, but leave that to God. God will determine when he returns, which we've already looked at in verse 12 of the previous chapter. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day that is the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. We talked about that a few weeks ago. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the motivations of the heart. He is describing two separate groups of believers. They both get saved. They both enter into heaven. But one group was motivated by wrong intentions of Thus, they built on the foundation of the church with hay, wood, and straw. So that's what Paul is talking about. Let God be the judge of that on the day of his return. And when he returns, each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. They'll either be allowed into heaven and that's it. Or they'll be allowed into heaven with something more. But ultimately, that is up to God. Paul's point, ultimately, to the church in Corinth, regarding apostles, leaders within the early church, but I think it is a legitimate application to say that this applies to ministers leaders within the church today. And Paul's point is this, don't place ministers on a pedestal, no matter who they are. Because at the end of the day, all ministers of the gospel are simply under rowers. They are just slaves for Christ. They are slaves for the church. They should be the ultimate servants within the church. They are servants within God's household. You know, I've said it before. This church doesn't belong to the elders. It doesn't belong to me. It's not my church. I am simply the one God chose to be the under rower for the church, one of the under rowers for the church. All ministers of the gospel are simply the waiter who brings the meal. We don't prepare the meal. I just bring it to you. I tell people that all the time when they um, compliment me on my servants, which I appreciate. I know they mean well. They're wanting to be encouraging. But I like to remind them that, you know, preaching good sermons is not hard when you just take it from here. 
It's all right here. You know, like John Calvin used to say that a good minister of the gospel is one who, like a mother bird, simply regurgitates the word of God and feeds it to the babies. There's a graphic image for you. But I literally am stealing Paul's sermons. 1 Corinthians is a sermon that was written. I'm stealing his sermons. That's all I do. I'm not the one who prepares the food. I'm simply the waiter who brings it. So save your compliments to the chef. Let's pray.